Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Deborah Lipstadt, U.S. Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Antisemitism, is a renowned Holocaust historian recognized earlier this year as one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 2023. She has written eight books and four years ago advised the United Nations on its unprecedented report on global antisemitism. In fact, she joined us on this podcast shortly after the report's release. Since then, she has joined the U.S. State Department in a role that for the first time carries the rank of ambassador. She joins us again this time in our pop-up Tel Aviv studio. Ambassador, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. Now, America's national strategy to counter anti-Semitism was adopted in May. I know your job primarily deals with U.S. foreign policy to combat anti-Semitism, but how does this new domestic strategy affect your work? Well, it affects our work in that certainly I was consulted and worked closely with the White House in the shaping of it, my team played a part in helping to shape it, people to reach out to and things like that. And there are over 24 agencies involved, that, including the State Department. We're now looking at all the other national strategies to see best practices, what America could possibly adopt. And of course, informally, I'm the administration's most knowledgeable person on anti-Semitism. So they turn to me quite often for advice, for ideas, et cetera. As I said, your role is more international, but do you need a domestic counterpart? Does the United States need a kind of a domestic anti-Semitism? I'm not sure. A lot depends on the strategy is really run out of the Domestic Policy Council, which until about a week ago was headed by Ambassador Susan Rice, who was greatly responsible for seeing this thing come to fruition. And we'll see how it works. It's up to them to decide how they want to do it. But I think it's also good that each agency, the usual suspects, as I like to say, Homeland Security, education, FBI, law enforcement are involved, but so are so many others, uh, Small Business Administration, Veterans Affairs, Smithsonian, all looking at ways to counter anti-Semitism, you know, make sure there aren't barriers that are there, whether because of anti-Semitism or just ignorance. And second gentleman, Doug Imhoff, has been certainly he very was involved. Great, he was, even before I was sworn in, after I was confirmed, I was in Washington and he asked me if I would come in and visit with him. We had a wonderful visit. We're in touch all the time. And he really feels this very deeply. And I give him great credit because he could easily have said, look, I'm the first Jew in this position for second gentleman. We put up a mezuzah at the residence. We have a Hanukkah party. We have a Seder. We do other things. Don't ask me to take the lead on this. But he's taken the lead. He's traveled all over. He traveled with me to Poland and Germany, where I coordinated a meeting for him with other special envoys, just to give him a sense of what other countries were doing. And I think when he and his staff and other people in the White House who were with us saw that, it sort of energized them to say, my God, other countries have taken this really seriously. They're way ahead of us. We have to do something serious as well. You know, with that in mind, I mean, if you think about it, your predecessors in this position have kind of made it their business to monitor, sound the alarm about anti-Semitism in Europe, elsewhere around the world. AJC helped convene that group of envoys at the White House. 
And so in many ways, the tables turned a little bit in terms of, you know, instead of the United States monitoring and sounding the alarm, these envoys came and advised the United States. I mean, has this actually, this kind of mutual mission actually improved the relationship with it's some of these countries? It's improved the relationship tremendously. We really work as a team, not as a team. Each one has its own, you know, uh, positions, certain things one can get involved in. I lurk and watch what's going on, but I'm not involved in But one of the first things I did, in fact, it was the same day as last year's AJC Global Forum, which was in New York, I think at Temple Emanuel. And I was on the stage with Katerina von Schnurbein, the amazing EU envoy on countering anti-Semitism and enhancing Jewish life. And then she and I left the meeting with Mr. Lotenberg, Frederica Lotenberg, who's the OAS special envoy, and we went down to USUN where we met with a group of us of special envoys, met to talk about how we could work together. We've been meeting, we've been convening. Katerina convened something at the EU, others have convened things, and then we meet, you know, sometimes we'll meet through the auspices, let's say, we'll be meeting here because many have come for AJC. But it is a government to government when we meet. It's not you know, convened by someone else, but it's people who speak for their governments coming together, which is quite amazing. Now, I've had great predecessors in this job. They were all terrific and were strong supporters of me taking the position, very excited about it from both sides of the aisle, and I'm very grateful for that. But there are differences. First of all, Congress elevated the position to an ambassador before I was in the picture, so it wasn't for me. And that carries weight in the world of protocol. That means you speak for the president. I see what weight it carries. In fact, I was just in conversation with a Republican senator around the time of the rollout because I was briefing him about the national strategy, and he had been one of those who had pushed for the elevation of it to be an ambassador. And I said, you know, when I first heard you were doing this, I said, oh, does it really matter? I said, I was wrong. You were right. It really enhances the importance. And it shows how America takes this seriously. But my predecessors, certainly amongst the earlier ones, we were the first country to have a position like this. So when something happened in a France, in a Belgium, in a Germany, whatever, they would go and they would say to the government, you know, we take this very seriously and we think you should take it seriously. Or if they were taking it seriously, we take this very seriously and what can we do to help you take it seriously? And say, you have a problem, you've got to address it. And now, first of all, I go and I say, we have a problem because we have acknowledged that exists in our country. And sometimes I don't have to go racing as they might have had to because there's someone else there. There's a a local person, there's a national person there too. Mm -hmm. So the fight has become much more coordinated and enhanced and really raised to a government level in a way that it hadn't been previously. Are there particular lessons that you can recall from any of your predecessors, any of the envoys that you've really taken to heart and and realized? I spoke to virtually all of them before I took the position, and they each had different advice. And I won't say one, the other, et cetera. But one of the reasons I've only been in the job a year was building alliances in the State Department. And I worried a little bit, not because of anything anybody said to me, just natural inclination to worry, to be a pessimist, so that way I can be happily surprised when good things happen or the bad stuff doesn't happen. But, you know, would I find compatriots in the State Department? Would people see me as, you know, oh, an add-on, a niche? Would I be operating off by myself? And that hasn't happened. And it's really been quite amazing, partially thanks to the advice I've gotten, partially, I think, my own 
interpersonal connections, but I have built really strong alliances. I'm not saying I have personally, but people in other offices with other portfolios see this not as a niche issue, but as a central element of American foreign policy. We hear a lot of statistics, numbers of incidents of hate crimes each month, each year. And I'm curious if that's what matters most. In other words, does the perception of a community also matter, whether it's a Jewish community or any other minority community, if that community perceives a rise in hatred against it, is that enough to amplify a response? The perception of a community is important, the perception of an individual. Sometimes any community, any individual can see things more dire than they are. But I think, if anything, the Jewish community has become more aware of certain incidents, more aware of certain things. I'll give you an example, New York. I think there are a lot of Jews in New York who didn't take seriously some of the anti-Semitism encountered by Haredi, Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn you know, who would walk down the street, get their hat knocked off or get spat upon. And you could say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, if you're walking down the street, especially walking down the street with one of your kids and your hat gets knocked off, suddenly you're looking at your father's got it, or as your mother walks down the street, she gets a little nervous because she sees people coming, it might be dangerous or whatever. And I think now they take that much more seriously. Had that been happening on the Upper West or East Side, we would have been quicker to respond. Do you think that that is enough for a government, for example, to amplify a response? Well, certainly a local government. This was happening in New York, but as it became more national. And there's something else, and the strategy addresses this, that government can't really deal with, but it can call out. And that's the normalization of anti-Semitism. And the strategy speaks to this very directly in the beginning, when it's something I'm paraphrasing here, when politicians, when when actors, when rap stars, when sports figures engage in anti-Semitism, it amplifies it in a way that it hadn't been before. Government can't stop them. We have that pesky thing called the First Amendment, and we all treasure it, even though sometimes it can make us gnash our teeth, but the good comes with the bad, or the bad comes with the good. But the normalization. So with the strategy, and when the strategy was rolled out, and I was one of, I spoke from the podium of the White House, One of the things I said, government can do a lot. Congress is already doing a lot and is willing to do more, but it calls for an all hands on deck. Not just because of protecting fellow American Jews, fellow citizens, but because, as I think listeners to People of the Pod know well, anti-Semitism is a threat to democracy. Uh, I've been talking about it now. Someone even said to me, the cliche, and I realized that I had been the one to really popularize it, of as the canary in the coal mine of democracy. But it's a warning. It's a warning. You began your tenure with a tour of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Israel, United Arab, Abu Dhabi, right? Right, um, uh, and that, Dubai. That first uh, right. trip. First stop was Riyadh. Oh, right. Okay, okay. And in fact, you were just in Abu Dhabi again. I was again, for a second time, just right? Just a few and, days and ago, where I encountered an AJC delegation. But AJC has been present in in Abu Dhabi and the Emirates for a very long time. 
I want to talk a bit about those visits and the Abraham Accords, which is another circumstance that has changed. Your immediate predecessor got to benefit a little bit from the Abraham Accords, but I'm curious if those accords are, are removing barriers, helping foster relationships, you know, that will, will only continue to improve the relationship between Israel and Muslim-majority countries, but also their receptiveness to your message about combating anti-Semitism. The Abraham Accords are of prime importance, and they've been wholly embraced by this administration. And not only embraced, but I've been encouraged to build on them, in part because we see them as a good thing in terms of uh, fostering relations in the region between Israel and these other Muslim-majority countries, but also because we see them as enhancing the Middle East, enhancing economy, enhancing, um, I mean, it's a great thing when we all go into Ben-Gurion Airport and we look up and there's the flight to Atlanta and right in front of it is the flight to Abu Dhabi, you know, or the flight to Detroit, you know, Dubai, you know. It's, some people would say it's Mashiach site. It's, it's the time of the Messiah in that sense. The Abraham House in Abu Dhabi, which is a mosque, a church, and a synagogue, is magnificent. Of course, that's not part of the Abraham Accords. So that wasn't that was generated in 2018 with a visit of Pope Francis to Abu Dhabi, who said, "Let us build a church and a mosque." And it was the leadership of the Emirates and said, "Let's build a synagogue too and make it a complex of the Abraham House, of the Abrahamic faith." And then, of course, uh, Morocco, which refers to it as normalization, because it's been doing this for quite a while. Morocco that expects 400,000 Israeli tourists this year. I think last year it had 225,000, and it's just, you know, everywhere. And all those things are good things. And then there are countries which are not yet, and I use not yet euphemistically, uh, part of these things, but see them as working and see them as operating. And I think that they're very important. Do you feel that they are perhaps more receptive to your message and to listening to what you have to say? Yes, of course. I mean, I think even, you know, when I went to Riyadh, to Saudi Arabia, I had meetings with high-ranking officials. Now you can show up and you can meet with the minister of, I don't know, uh, keeping the paint dry or something <laughs> like that. Or you can meet with higher-level ministers. And I met with high-level ministers, very productive meetings. And one of my messages was, Look, there is a geopolitical crisis in this region. We're well aware of that. My country is well aware of it. I work for a government that is, you know, has hundreds of people actively engaged in addressing this issue. But that's something in many respects separate and apart from prejudice and from hatred. And the example, I had this interesting encounter in either Riyadh or Jeddah with an older imam who knew what my status was or my remit was, my portfolio was. And he said, if Israel solved the Palestinian crisis, there'd be no anti-Semitism. So there was a part of me that thought, hmm, I think there was anti-Semitism before the Palestinian crisis. I think there was anti-Semitism before there was in Israel. I think there was anti-Semitism before there was Zionism. You know, go back and back and back. But I didn't think that was going to get me anywhere, you know, putting on my professorial hat, my mortar board as we do graduation and, and lecturing him on that. So instead, I said to him, after 9-11 in my country, there was a surge, not of Islamophobia, but Islamohatred. As you well remember, I'm sure, there was an attempt at one point to build a Muslim community center opposite Ground Zero, where the World Trade Center had been. 
And in fact, that the group that was building it consulted with the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan. You know, what's your experience? What rooms? How did you build? Did you build enough? Should we have a gym? Should we have a pool? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And whatever body, whether it was the city council or whatever in New York, New York, the polygot capital of the United States, refused permission because they said to build the Muslim community center adjacent to Ground Zero when it was Muslims that had destroyed the buildings and murdered the people there would be an insult. And many of us thought that was wrong, that was prejudice. And I said, why should Muslims in lower Manhattan, a woman who wants a good place for her children to to, to learn about their tradition or to have an iftar or whatever it might be, a man to go to pray or whatever. Why should they be denied that right? Because other Muslims had destroyed and attacked the buildings. And the man said to me, you're absolutely right, it was prejudice. I said, well, to say that anti-Semitism is solely dependent on what Israel does or does is the same thing. Mm-hmm. And he got very quiet. I don't think I changed his mind, but he stopped arguing. Do you see any progress toward people understanding it more as a territorial conflict? I think so. I hope so. I think it's a continuing, it's not like you, you get to a point, and now we're at this point, now we get to the next point. You know, I, I used to lift 20 pounds, now I can lift 30 pounds. You know, it goes back and forth. It goes back and forth depending on the situation. It's a volatile process. And do you think that that getting them to understand it as a territorial conflict would actually fulfill part of your role? in terms of combating anti-Semitism, that that's part and parcel. Absolutely. But I think it's also necessary not to do things that are going to aggravate or not to do things that are going to make it harder for some of these countries to follow through with the Abraham Accord. So Mm -hmm. it cuts both ways. In May, you and Ambassador Hood attended the annual Lagbo Amera Festival at the El Griba Synagogue. In Jerba. In Jerba, the Tunisia. Tunisian island of Jerba. Tunisia is one of dozens of Arab countries where Jews were forced out and displaced. And I'm curious if you could reflect a little on the situation of Jews in the Middle East and North African countries. Tunisia is a different story than Morocco, different story than the Emirates, than Bahrain, in that it does have a very small Jewish community. I think there are 1,300 Jews in Jerba. Been there hundreds, hundreds, thousands, you know, years. And this much smaller community in Tunis and a number of other places. But this festival has been going on for quite a while. And it was really reasserting itself after COVID, after an attack about 20 years ago on the festival. And it was so promising. And when I heard that Ambassador Hood, our American ambassador in Tunis was going, I said, you want company? He said, I'd love it. So we went together. We visited the school there that is funded by and supported by the Joint American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the Joint, the JDC. One of the little students showed him how to draw an olive. It was very poignant. And we had a wonderful time. And then we went to the festival that night. The night before, the deputy minister from the government catered a kosher meal for us, a kosher feast for many of the foreign representatives who were there. And we went to the festival. It was just joyous, just joyous. And we just loved it. We were so happy and meeting people and seeing people and meeting old friends and et cetera. And people were the American ambassadors here, which was very exciting to Ambassador Hood. And we stood in a place and I noticed that our security guards, we had pretty tight security because, of course, American amb- two, two ambassadors and personnel from uh, American Embassy Tunis were getting nervous. I said, oh, they should relax. 24 hours later, precisely, in that same place, there was a shooting. And... Two guards were killed and two Jewish, one French 
uh, Tunisian and one's, one Israeli Tunisian were murdered. So it was very sobering, very, very sobering. And Tunisia was in the beginning, what should we say, reluctant to acknowledge this as an anti-Semitic act. They talked about his criminality. They talked about his terrorism. So Ambassador Hood and I, not together with, but also uh, President Macron and the German foreign minister all said this is anti-Semitism, plain and simple. And swayed them, turned, oh, well, I don't know if we swayed them, but we got them to, he met with the president, met with the chief rabbi, and they changed a little bit. It's, you know, sometimes it's criminality. Sometimes someone gets mugged on the street and it doesn't matter what they are, who they were there. But when this guy, he was on guard at a naval base, he shot his fellow guard, took a car, drove half hour across the island to the synagogue to attack the synagogue. That wasn't, he didn't say, oh, there are a crowd of people. I mean, he knew where he was going and he knew what he was doing. My last question is, some listeners might not realize that there is actually a separate special envoy for Holocaust issues. That's right. your, your colleague, Ellen, Ellen Germain. Germain. Given the rise of Holocaust distortion, trivialization, your canon of work, mm-hmm. the loss of survivors, how much of what you do now intersects with her work? Well, we're very careful. I mean, she is really handling Holocaust reparations issues, property reparations, not that we get directly involved, but in urging countries to address these things. But there's not that much overlap, but there's a great deal of cooperation with us, you know, times traveling together, working together, the more, the more. Are there priorities that you can see for implementing the national strategy since we started talking about it? I think there are so many things in there that can be done large and small, I urge people to download it. Maybe you can put the link on your website. It's downloadable. It's 60 pages. Read the whole thing. It's really, I have to tell you, I was I knew it as it was emerging, but at one point when I saw a draft of it, and they asked me to go over it, I, in fact, I was abroad doing it in another country. It was a little complicated, but of course, as I began to read it, without going into the specifics even of the definitions, I was deeply moved. Because, and I don't like to correct my boss, otherwise known as the president of the United States, but when he spoke about it at the White House, he called it the most momentous, comprehensive plan the American government has ever addressed. And he was wrong. It was the first comprehensive plan that the American government has ever addressed. Of course, when there have been tragedies, presidents from both sides of the aisle, from all perspectives, have condemned, have responded. America has responded. Law enforcement has responded. But this is the first time that the United States government is taking the bull by the horns and saying, what can we do to address this scourge? And as I said from the podium of the White House when it was rolled out, probably making history because it's the first time a missioner was quoted from the White House or Talmud was quoted from the White House. I quoted from the, I used the verse from Ethics of the Elders, Perkei Avot, Lo alecha hamlacham ligmor v'lo ben chorin levatel mimenu. You're not obligated to complete the task but you're not free from starting it, from engaging it. The United States government has now seriously engaged in it. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador. Thank you. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation between my colleague Benjamin Rogers and Senator Jody Ernst, a founding member of the Senate Abraham Accords Caucus. On the occasion of the Abraham Accords' third anniversary, they discuss what has been accomplished in those three years and whether a new relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia could be next. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC, 
Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.